when I hear people equate success to material success, that's a principle I disagree with. I'm more about the alchemist. Like, enjoy the adventure and enjoy the building, and maybe there's a treasure at the end of it. Maybe there isn't. I don't know. I'm wearing Stance socks. I got on a Stance shirt. And I even have on Stance underwear. And I happen to have the man responsible for it all right here, right now. Mr. Jeff Curls in the building. Welcome, my brother. I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Clark. Thanks for having me. So Jeff and I have a relationship. He found me online one day. He was just strolling on Instagram. Where were you looking at? Yep. So I don't do a lot of social media, but I happen to be uh, relaxing on vacation in Italy. And I was a little bored sitting on the beach, so I was looking at Instagram, and a random post came up of you, not sure how, uh, something in the algorithm thought we should meet, and uh, the post was your post on mindset, and it was effectively, what does mindset mean? Well, technically, it means to set your mind to something, and what I loved about the post was you said... If you haven't set your mind to this journey, then why are we talking about supplements and routines and programs? Because until you've set your mind, none of that matters. And for whatever reason, that thought resonated. So I immediately went to Google and Googled your name. And randomly, the first thing that popped up in my feed was an endorsement from a guy named Eric Alabest. Mm -hmm. And I had been Eric's neighbor for a few years and uh, hold him in high esteem as a business builder and an entrepreneur and and just an overall uh, great person. And he had this glowing endorsement of you. And that made it even more intriguing because I think had that not occurred, I would have probably just skipped on doing whatever I was doing. But because Eric gave you this glowing endorsement, uh, I took it really credibly. And when I got back from vacation, uh, I had, you know, ballooned into the worst shape of my life. I was uh, turning 50 years old and I knew that I wanted to uh, build some new habits and change directions. And uh, so I, I think, DM'd you. And uh, that led to our relationship, started coming down and working out with you at the house. I didn't know at the time that you were in Southern California, that you'd be local. And uh, so that just was serendipitous. And um you know, just, you know, you became a really important uh, catalyst for me to help me change some health habits that were long overdue and needed a, an overhaul. Yeah. Well, you've definitely changed a whole lot in that time. And it's always interesting for me to know the history of how someone found me, especially when we now have this relationship. But with that being said, you have a storied career in business. And that's really what I want to talk about. Go ahead and open that thing up because you're driving me nuts trying to open it up. Get it done. Get it over with because that slow crinkling in the background (laughs) is distracting as hell. We got Jim over there trying to eat something silently, but we'll go ahead and get it out of the way. You done? Done. Okay. (laughs) But you're... Career in business has been intriguing. So there have been se- actually every time we've ever worked out together while you're warming up on the treadmill, you'll tell me some of your entrepreneurial background. So let's jump in to that. And the whole goal of this podcast is to dovetail into how fitness really helps you and how important it is for you to remain fit on your journey of entrepreneurialism and building these large brands and how when you were out of shape, It wasn't working well for you, whatever your story is with that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but let's, so let's jump in. I think Skull Candy is one of the first big wins you had. Yeah. I actually had a company before that. And like most entrepreneurs, um, you know, I was hustling different businesses starting in high school. I was a disc jockey in high school. I would DJ all my high school dances and football games and, and actually made a nice living doing that. And then when I got to college, of course, there were nightclubs, which started DJing in the nightclubs. Pretty soon I was the general manager of the local nightclub and, you know, learned how that business worked. And, and, um, so I had these little experiences with business over time. And I think like many people in their twenties, at that point, I was just trying to figure out what I was going to be when I grew up and what that would look like. And, um, I ended up, 
you know, working in a pretty entrepreneurial environment right out of college. Uh, I joined a small venture fund and, um, you know, we were investing in technology companies during the dot-com era. So how do you join a small venture fund? It's not just something you just go join, right? Like, hey, well, I got 20 more bucks. Or less, it's really, a, it's another great story. But um, I was at some kind of networking event and I bumped into a guy randomly and we ended up talking for an hour or two and we really hit it off. And um, his name was Greg Warnock and he's been a venture investor for a long time, just had an, an incredible investing career. And for whatever reason, I think he saw something in me. And a few months later, we had a random lunch just to catch up after this networking event. And at the lunch, he said, uh, you know, what are you doing after lunch? And I said, I'm not sure. And he said, well, will you come down to the office? I'd like to offer you a job. Could you start today? Wow. And um, it was a little unique because it's not like I had a chance to think about it or talk to anyone or get advice. And those are probably all things you'd do if you were considering a, a career or a job. But um, I knew that it would be a special opportunity and that I could learn from him. Uh, and so I said, yes, on the spot, followed him to the office. And he walked into the firm and said, hey, this is your office over here. And uh, plopped down my stuff. And that was my first day of work there. Did and you it, study finance in school? Was that your- I did. And I was marketing. Oh. Um, I mean, obviously, I had taken accounting and finance right, at a basic base. level. Yeah. Um, I understood financial statements and things like this, but I wasn't a finance guy per se. Um, but quite frankly, venture capital to call that finance would be a bad label also. It's it's a business about building companies from scratch. It's more about the zero to one than the one to 10. Okay. Um, you know, it's about this initial idea and can we get fit with a market for that? And will customers desperately want this product? And uh, so, I don't really think of myself as a finance guy today, even though I am technically in the money management business, I consider myself uh, a builder of businesses. So you said something that's really important. Will company, will people desperately want this product? Is that what you measure most every decision you make on? Well, typically when I get involved with a project, it's before we know the answer to that question, right? It's early and we're constantly going through a trial and error process to get to what we would call product market fit, where we have a product and there's a clear group of buyers that want it. And once that happens, then everyone else knows that there's something to that company. And it's it's just a matter of how big can it scale. The hard part is most companies never get to true product market fit. If sales and marketing feels hard, it probably means you don't have very good product market fit. So you can fire your sales guy, you can change the way you compensate your salespeople. But if there's a lot of friction in the sales process, what it's really saying is you haven't found a group of customers that desperately want your product yet. Hmm. That's interesting because I'm just sitting here thinking about my business and trying to go through the process of what I know my funnel looks like and the sticky points that I get to thinking, how can I improve that product market fit? and make my customers desperately want what I have. I know they desperately need what I have, but my question now becomes, how do I des make them desperately want what CBX offers, right? Because there's a need, I have to fill that need better than anybody else. That's right, that's okay. right. And you have competitors, right? right? And they have offerings. And so it's complicated, you know, and there's a lot that goes into it. It's the value proposition at its core, but it's also, can you sell it at a price that you also make money? Right. So there are some things that you can sell, but just at not enough margin for it to make sense as an interesting business. Um, and so I'm interested in opportunities where there's a competitive differentiation. It's a unique enough product offering. There's a substantial differentiation about it that it can almost be alone in the market. Like I expect when we do a project, other people are going to copy us, not the other way around. Like we want to be first. So I have to fast forward to stance because I'm wearing all this stance gear, but it's a white freaking t-shirt for God's sake. Yeah. yeah you so know what I mean? And I mean, the socks are super cool. I'll take off my shoe because I love this sock, but what you just said 
I mean, this doesn't necessarily stand out in the marketplace to make people desperately want it. They feel good. They look good. There's a brand loyalty. But like, how do you get there? That's the thing that intrigues me. Yeah. So I think there's two kinds of businesses at a basic level. A lot of the projects that I do are more technology oriented. And so your moat, your competitive differentiation, what makes you unique um, is that no one else has the software code you have, or no one else has trained the AI the way you have on the data set you have. You have something that's truly unique. Uh, when you're talking about commodities and whether that's a sock, a shoe, or today you can even contract manufacture an automobile quite easily. So when you're talking about something that anyone can go make, then the only differentiation is the brand, right? You're wearing Nike shoes for a reason. I'm not sure that they're better than lots of other shoes, but you prefer them. You've got those on your feet. And so what was it about the Nike brand that attracted you to that tribe? And the conversation of brand is, that's a long one. We could spend a lot of time on it. But when you have a competitive differentiation because of the unique nature of your technology, you can almost ignore the brand part of the equation because no one else has what you have. Yeah, it's just. But it's, when you're selling a commodity, then brand is the only thing you have. So if you're going to be in the commodities business, you have to be an expert at brand building. And you have to understand what a brand is, how it comes to be, what it's like, how to develop it. And that's a long conversation. But the reason why, you know, Stance certainly makes uh, an ultra premium sock. We use the very best materials. We use the world's best knitting machines. We have a sock lab filled with freaky people that just try and build better socks all the time, as you'd imagine. Sock scientists? Yeah, sock scientists, <laughs> for sure. Um, but we also are aware that you know, customers buy our product in part because they feel an association for what we stand for. The best brands in the world stand for something much bigger than the products they sell. You could call Nike a shoe company, but the reality is it's a company that celebrates great athletes and the spirit of competition. And when the co-founder of Nike said, if you have a body, you're an athlete, it made the mission inclusive of everyone. And so you have brands like that, uh, that, attract nearly everyone who doesn't like great athletic competition. Like it attracts a huge amount of our world population, which is why Nike is so big. Um, but any brand, it could be, think of your car, uh, think of food you buy, you know, why do you choose one thing over another? And it's what that brand stands for in your mind outside of the product itself. This is such a fascinating conversation to me. My mind's going a million different directions. Like the first thought I have is, in your opinion, with my brand, how well have I done with my branding? Because I was never a guy who studied marketing or understood it, but I feel like I'm a natural born marketer. And the more authentic I am with who I am, I think it really just makes the brand more solid. Like when I think of CBX, it, it's on a solid foundation of honesty and transparency and truth and vulnerability and in your face, like I am what I am, take it or leave it. I think that's a great insight because brands are actually a lot like people, right? When you start a brand on day one, it really is like an infant. Yeah. Uh, it has a personality, but it can't speak yet. So it's really limited. And as that young person develops into a child pretty soon, they're like, oh, I hate broccoli or I love ice cream. And you start to see their personality traits come out. The same thing happens with a brand. You know, brands can't be everything and they become personalities. And I think a great brand knows who it is. It knows how it likes its coffee in the morning. Yeah. And like a person, the story unfolds over time. There's always a new chapter. You know, you're different in college than how you were in high school. And you're different as a young adult than you were in college. And you're different as an older adult than when you were a young adult. And your attributes and your development changes over time. And that's exactly what happens with a brand. Brands always stand for something. The question is really how intentional is the founder about really expressing the attributes of the brand to the audience in a clear, articulate way. Uh, you know, like we call certain airlines and we expect poor customer service. 
no need to throw anyone under the bus. Right. There are certain airlines where you kind of expect it. And by contrast, maybe there's other airlines where you're a frequent flyer and you expect to be treated really well because you spend a lot of money on that product and they probably know who you are and treat you differently because you're a part of their loyalty program. Um, and they track your spending and they put you in a different category and you might have a whole different expectation traveling on that airline. Um, that's a deliberate, you know, part, a, a deliberate expression of two different companies operating the same space with two different brands. So with mine, when you resonated with the message, is that you resonating with the presentation, obviously, of my brand and the identity of it? Yeah, I think part of it is I needed an accountability partner for myself. I know that habits are hard to create and I had had bad habits for 10 years. I would say increasingly bad habits what didn't kind of start bad habits? that way. What? Uh, not paying Eating attention whatever. to my diet, not exercising every day. These are common sense items. It's like you could have an audience of people and say, do we all believe in common sense? And everyone would say yes. And then you'd say, well, how many people wear their seatbelts every day? How many people brush their teeth every day? Mm -hmm. And if we're being honest, there's probably a few people in the room that are like, ah, yeah, don't do that. Or how many people wash their hands after you go to the restroom? It's common sense, but it's not always common practice, right? And so- I wash my hands before I pee, just for the record. To me, it makes more sense to wash your hands before you pee than afterwards. I agree. Just putting it out there. I agree. There's a lot of logic <laughs> behind that. Uh, your hands are likely dirty and your junk is probably Especially clean. if you're in the gym, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it makes sense, yeah. but you get the point, Yeah, which is just simply that even if intellectually you know that you should work out regularly and you should pay attention to the things going in your body, and on top of that, your sleep and all the other habits that go into health, it's still, even if you know the truth of those principles, can be really hard to not put a bite of ice cream in your mouth when you're craving it. There's a physiology that it can be hard to override and Honestly, I needed an accountability partner to help get me there. I didn't want to try and do it on my own. Um, and you seemed like you would hold me accountable. That's what attracted me. Good. Well, have I? I think so. Yeah. One of the things I love about you is like my doctor, you check in on me all the time, even outside of my regular appointments. Hey, how's it going? How are you doing? And those texts actually mean a lot because in that moment, you have to answer honestly. Like, how am I really doing? I want to say great. But what if I cheated today? What if I wasn't operating with integrity to the fitness principles we've talked about? Um, so I think the more you can have those check-ins, I need them less today because, you know, I was able to shift directions and make a change. But initially, not only did I need an accountability partner, but sort of your book where your mind goes, so do you. I had to reprogram my whole life. I stopped listening to business books. I stopped thinking about business. I would listen to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts. Every one of those, I switched to fitness, health, longevity. I tried to fill my mind for the first six months with only content on diet, fitness, longevity, just so that I wouldn't have anything else to think about. And just then data too, you were collecting it. Yeah, of data. I, I'm an analytics guy, so I got pretty freaky. I did fall in love with all the sensors, the aura ring and the watch and, you know, heart rate monitor and having a phlebotomist come to the house every quarter and take my, my blood and send those results to my doctor and benchmark and trend that data over time. And, you know, if you start taking a supplement stack or you make a change to your routine, you want to know if it made an impact. And we have so many more markers today than just the scale getting a DEXA scan every so often so you can see how the composition of your body is changing. And I just went after all of that. I love that stuff. So that was easy. The fact that we could now track, I could track my sleep, my quality of sleep. I could track my food, my calories. I could track my heart, my physiology, and the key markers in my blood. Like I geeked out on that. That actually helped. Yeah. Um, so I, I liked that part of the, the journey. I loved watching you do all of that because it correlates so much with how you've built your businesses and been so successful in life. You know, then I hit you with the whole, you can be a CEO of all of these seven, eight figure businesses, but you can't run your own damn body. What's going on here? And that was like the really. Yeah. That was like the true, you know, come to Jesus moment. Like you just have to be accountable. 
Yeah. That's all it was. But that was, um, it really changed how I thought about it because I would like to think of myself. I don't know that I am, but deep down, I'd like to think of myself as a really exceptional business operator. Like I understand how to control a business yeah. and I feel comfortable and confident in that. I have a history of seeing my decisions, good and bad, and their consequences. And over time, there's a lot of pattern matching and you become better at something through your mistakes. And I felt like I'd paid a lot of those dues. And um, when you said, hey, you can run a company, but not your own body, not your own fitness, like not your own health, that really left a mark. <laughs> like that hit hard um, because I want to be a great operator of my body too. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't. And you switched that switch instantly though. In that moment, you literally in that moment, I remember it like it was yesterday, I saw the light go on in you and you're like, okay, let me show you what I can do. So with that being said, let's go back to Skull Candy, which I think is a fascinating story of business and how you help build a brand that was unique and different because there were a million earbuds out there in the world that were you know, good, right? Yeah. But you guys created a brand that stuck out in the marketplace. And that's, again, what you talk about being as an entrepreneur. Yeah. So look, it's hard to post-mortem success and say, why did it work and everything that went into it. But I can tell you the quick story. So I was working as an associate at this venture fund. And that's sort of like a junior attorney in a law firm. I was building financial models, making reference calls, writing investment memos, Lots of grunt work, I would call it, PowerPoint presentations, things like this. And um, this entrepreneur came and pitched me and he had the idea. He said, I want to do headphones for snowboarders because my tribe, we don't like Bose and Sony. We want something that speaks to us. And um, I told him, look, our firm's never going to invest in a company like this. We like software and internet businesses, um, not a products business with inventory and supply chain. We like virtual businesses. And um we became friends. He invited me to go snowboarding. We spent some time on the mountain. I didn't know at the time, but that was really how he vetted the people in his life is, do I like to ride a chairlift with him? Yeah. And um, if he couldn't ride a chairlift with you, then you're sort of banished from his life. So I apparently passed that test and we didn't have a deep relationship, but I think there was an initial friendship. And uh, this was in the summer of 2003. And in 2004, he called me. January at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. He said, hey, I've reserved a booth and I paid a deposit so that I could show buyers my headphone samples. But I don't have the money for the other half of the deposit on the, the trade show booth. Mm. And if I don't get down to Las Vegas so I can show these buyers what I got, I'm not going to have a business. Would you lend me some money? And A, I didn't have a lot of money at this stage in my career. I was pretty young. Um, and B, I was in the business of doing highly structured diligence transactions on a professional investment level. So the idea that I would just like whip out my credit card and be like, sure, here you go, uh, was even more improbable. But somehow he was so persuasive. He talked to me on my credit card wow. on the phone, talked for like an hour. Then to the call, I'm like, here's my card. Knock yourself out. Got a $25,000 limit. See what you can come up with. He calls me back after the show. And mind you, that Christmas, there was a new kid on the Christmas gift list, and it was called the iPod. There had been MP3 players, plenty of those, but they were really kludgy because you had to get your like Napster pirated music off your machine and get it transferred onto this music player and the controls were, weren't great. And of course, Apple disrupted all of this by selling songs for 99 cents and all of a sudden, that Christmas, the hottest Christmas gift you could buy was the iPod. There was no iPhone yet. Right. This is all pre that. And um, he goes down to the Consumer Electronics Show with that context. And he sells $900,000 worth of headphones. Wow. And he comes back and he's like, good news, bad news. I got all these orders. Bad news is I don't have any money to produce the headphones. Can you help me get the money? So I start introducing them to the local angel investors, you know, seeing if someone would take an interest in this project. And um, in the meantime, before I do that, I want to make sure it's real. And I'm in the business making reference calls. So I'm like, send me your POs. So he sends me these five, six, seven POs that he's got at the show. And I start calling them. 
And the first one is uh, this company called Sam Goody Musicland. Oh, wow. And they had like a thousand stores. They were in every mall in America. And they had historically sold cassettes and CDs, but they had a section in the store where they sold Sony Discmen and Walkmen. Because again, music players were real new. And in that section, they had a bunch of headphones. So I call this random buyer of this electronic section at Sam Goody. And I say, why are you giving this entrepreneur a PO for a headphone company you've never heard of? He's like, well, I got Sony and Bose and Sennheiser. They're all black and silver. They're in the same boxes. And they all say they sound better than each other. They're all positioned around, we we sound better than the next guy. And what I liked about Skull Candy was they had clear packaging, pop colors. They didn't look like the rest. And there was no positioning around sound quality. It was really a lifestyle. It's sort of this lifestyle of uh, rebelliousness and contrarianism. Like, I like these snowboarder guys. Like, And I like what it stands for. He's like, so I'm going to drop like Sennheiser or Panasonic because they're just a me too. And this brand is different. And that was actually my first lesson about launching a product category which is the single most important thing. There are many attributes that matter, like your gross margin and who buys this and at what price and all of the, is it seasonal? And is it a product that has a repeat purchase rate or is it a one-time purchase? Is it easy to ship? Is it e-commerce friendly? There's a lot of things you need to consider. I don't want to oversimplify it. But one thing you need to consider is what the competitive group looks like the day you launch. And if they are all homogenized, in other words, they look identical to each other, That's a good thing because then it makes it really easy to differentiate. Like a good real world example of this would be every water bottle in the world was round until Fiji. And they came up with this hard shell plastic bottle with this kind of weird ballooned square shape. And it was different. It still fit in the slots, but it felt different. It had a different weight to it. It looked more premium and it was more premium. It wasn't this thin plastic bottle and they had this outrageous price. And it was so different than all the other sort of generic water bottles. Of course, it stood out on the shelf. Um, And in the same way, that's how Skull Candy was in 2004. And it got even better because Apple started shipping these cheap little white earbuds with every iPod. And those didn't fit a lot of people's ears. They were inexpensive. They didn't sound great. So that, of course, created this whole market for aftermarket headphones that had never existed before. So I'd like to say that we were great business operators at Skull Candy, but we were probably pretty average. But we were a part of a perfectly timed market. And uh, seven years later, we took that public, that business public on the NASDAQ. And two years after that, we sold it to a private equity fund called Mill Road Capital. Uh, Great transactions. But that business went zero to $300 million in sales and very profitable in less than seven years. Wow. It was a really exciting ramp um, and just incredible growth and something that was fun to be a part of. And and I guess to close the story, uh, there was a group of investors that came together and we put a little round of financing together. I want to say a half a million dollars to kind of get that company going. And uh, all of the people that participated in that initial investment round were very rewarded at the time of the IPO. Um, it was an incredible return for all those initial supporters. And so it's just a great story of uh, sort of this entrepreneur's crazy idea, improbable dream, great market timing. And we just capitalized on all of those things. And and it became a, a really great chapter of my life. And of course, it created a whole playbook of how to sell things direct to consumers. We took that business public in 2011. This is before Bonobos, Allbirds, Warby Parker, any of the more common direct consumer brands that you know today even existed. None of those brands had been founded yet. So we understood how to build these businesses, uh, you know, before any of them. So Stance was an easy one. Socks, there were all sorts of attributes about socks we loved, but we invested in many other categories. We did away with luggage you know, several other companies in different categories where we didn't build them, but we recognized the opportunity. We were able to invest in those businesses. And and a lot of those turned out to be phenomenal investments for us. So uh, that's fascinating. Did you only invest 25 grand or did you invest more after? I later invested more, but I think my total exposure was less than $100,000 to Skull Candy over its life. And that was your first big win in business? Uh, it was really 
I think the first big win in terms of me as a third party investor going very, very early and taking something from like cradle to grave. But prior to that, I, I had a tech company, a marketplace for graphic designers um, that I had, uh, you know, really, I started working on it as a side hustle probably in 2002 or three, but became my full-time focus in 2004. We were able to raise money from really the best venture capitalists in the world, a firm called Benchmark Capital, um, and a partner there named Bob Cagle. And Bob is famous today. He's part of the ownership group at the Golden State Warriors. But um, prior to that, Bob was the first investor in eBay. And he saw what eBay could become even at the time it was just selling small collectibles. And I think the five or seven million dollars he put into eBay bought him roughly 15 or 20 percent of that company. And of course eventually became worth $100 billion. Um, so I think it was a really incredible return for Benchmark Capital. And Bob, and, and having Bob on my board of directors and sort of my mentor, I was able to observe his behaviors as an investor and how he did due diligence on a company and how he helped a company operate and how he thought about selling a business. And, you know, we were fortunate in that three years into that company, uh, HP came along and we weren't for sale, but they made an offer we couldn't refuse. And we sold the business to HP in an all cash deal. Um, and that was really my first uh, financial win um, where I had a company, it was acquired and there was a nice outcome for everyone involved. And, and I took that capital and I started investing it in other startups. You know, I felt like the thing I knew how to do was build a startup. So, I'm not going to invest in public equities because I don't know how to analyze a public equity. And I'm not going to invest in real estate. Not that I think real estate is that difficult. It's a really simple formula. But I wasn't an expert in real estate. And I feel like to really make money, there's lots of ways, but the three obvious ones are have equity in private companies, have equity in public companies like Warren Buffett, or have equity in real estate. And there's countless examples of people that have done well in real estate. And, and my view is you should become an expert in one of those and go deep in that. And I just chose to make mine private companies, particularly early stage ones where it's rough. Even if it's two kids out of college with a PowerPoint and nothing more to it, I could get really interested in an idea at that stage. Wow. It's the battle, right? It's the whole fun of the just conquering this thing that seems... Like it can't be conquered, right? I like things that have risk. If I don't feel like it could go out of business, if we make the wrong decisions, I, I don't feel alive. And at the early stages, there's a lot of risk still. In fact, you'd argue at the early stages, all you're really doing as an entrepreneur is removing the most important risks from your business systematically over time. And as you de-risk your company, it correspondingly becomes more valuable. And so you're just in the risk reduction business. That's all you are as an entrepreneur. So part of the game is knowing what the real risks and threats to your company are. And if you're honest with yourself, you probably already know what those are. And then two, understanding what the tools are to get rid of those risks, bulletproof your business over time. Where did you learn your best education from, I guess? Was it in school or is it just proximity? Like you had mentioned the man that you got involved with in the venture capital fund, is it better? Because there's a lot of young kids that want to be entrepreneurs yeah. and they have this battle. Should I go to college? Should I just grind and learn off of YouTube and making mistakes? Both can work. Uh, I think my greatest lessons were taught to me in moments of failure. When I failed, made decisions that didn't work out. Uh, and those teach you more about anything that goes right. Um, so, don't be afraid to fail. Like the trial and error process is very much a part of it. And whether that's a product that fails, a company that fails, a partnership that fails, like you take those learnings and you become better the next time. So I don't think you should be afraid of those. I think that goes with the territory. I don't think you can avoid them. You just have to embrace it. You're going to make mistakes. Um, everyone will in life and in business. Right. Um, no one is going to operate perfectly. So do you deny that you make the mistakes or do you spend a lot of thoughtful time trying to post-mortem your mistakes so that you theoretically don't repeat them in the future? So did you get better the next time when you oh. went into stance? 
and yes. started that brand. In my business now as a venture capitalist, the safest bet I think I can make is to bet on an entrepreneur who's built an enterprise software company already, and now they're doing their second one. Because there's so much on the job training through the trial and error that you get your first time through. It's like a crucible yeah. that when you do it the second time, you can go so much faster. It's like getting on that bullfrog thing that I got you on. The first time you're on it, it's really awkward and weird. I said, watch what happens. The next time, your brain's going to know and you're going to do it a whole lot better. Yeah, there's a muscle memory. Yeah. It's like that in business, I think. I think if you're a thoughtful entrepreneur and you can incorporate those things and have a better toolkit the next time you go about it. Um, I I think differently about consumer businesses. I think about those a little bit more as lightning in a bottle. Just because you had one doesn't mean you'll have a second one. Um, But when we're talking about enterprise software and technology businesses, I think repeat entrepreneurs go faster and they make fewer mistakes. So they're easier to work with. And they're generally unreasonable people to begin with. Uh, So I like them when little the edges come off on the second time. Yeah, you don't have as many of the headaches to deal with along the way that you know you're going to win the battle because it's like, listen, I made the same mistake myself. Yeah, I do appreciate the unreasonableness of entrepreneurs because I had that too. Like, And that oftentimes is what, you know, makes something that is an improbable thing to work, work. Yeah, I I feel that in myself sometimes with certain non-negotiables in my life. It's like, no, someone even like yourself, who's way smarter than I'll ever be in business could come to me with something that in my gut, I know is right for my brand that I'm not going to budge on. I mean, I'll listen, I'll take advice, but if I know I need to talk to my demographic a certain way and someone says, eh, you're coming off a little bit harsh, you know what I mean? Seem like an asshole or whatever. I'm like, I know what I'm doing. And if some people don't come to me because of that, that's fine. I'm not here for everybody. Of course. You're not selling everyone stance socks. You're selling stance socks to the people who love the brand, which, by the way, there are so many people that do love the brand. Everyone that I tell we're friends and we work out together and they're like, oh, I have stance socks. Even the lady you met the other day at the house, she was embarrassed that she wasn't wearing them that day. So you built this tribe of loyal people. And I love the story behind the brand because it wasn't you alone doing this time. And you had mentioned earlier how you need to really be distinct about the the culture. How hard is it to create a culture and a message, a specific message with four other people involved and everybody having an idea? Yeah. Well, look. Um, I think one of the things that I've learned when I interview entrepreneurs who have failed and I ask them about their regrets, one of the common responses is I would have hired differently. So that's a whole longer conversation around, well, how do we find great people or people who are a fit? Um, and how do you go through that selection process? And um, But I will just sum it up and say, I place a really high value on a team and I place an even higher value on a team that's going to create a brand. And the reason for this is I actually think the leading indicator of brand strength is company culture. So the values and how well they're shared and lived inside a company eventually bleeds to the exterior of the company to its customers. And if you have a toxic culture, people that don't get along or dysfunction inside your walls, your customers will somehow detect that. They just do. And when you stand for something that's inspirational and you do great work and it's really clear what you stand for customers detect that too so the leading indicator of a great brand is their company culture and how well it functions and of course the building block of a great culture the first couple of people you hire that's like the dna before it's started to duplicate so your first two three four hires are really important and even if you hire them and never intentionally address or talk about your culture, make no mistake, culture happens whether you're intentional about it or not. Those people begin to adopt ways of behaving on their own if you don't help direct it. So the best way to reinforce values is when someone in your company doesn't adhere to the values that you've clearly communicated over and over again. You've screened for them when you hired the people. The company hangs its life on these values. Maybe values isn't the right word. I like the word behaviors, the way we show up. If those behaviors aren't honored by employees in your company, you have to fire them. It should be a public lynching. 
because nothing tells all the other people how important these values are more than when you fire someone who doesn't live the values. And the opposite is true. If you let people in your company that just blatantly disregard your company behaviors and you let them stay, that tells everyone in the company that you don't really care. And the values were just some lame mission statement on the wall, right? Just platitudes, useless platitudes, like didn't matter. So not only do you have to think what these behaviors need to be, be really thoughtful about that um, and describe them and educate uh, your company over and over again, what they are and how they work. It's like a never ending process of building your culture. Um, but when someone can't get into line, you just gotta end it. And that can be a really good crucible moment also to just put a stake in the ground and be like, this is what we stand for as a company. Yeah. I think it, I've done it and I know it was hard. I mean, you met me right around the time I had to do it with a specific person. It was one of the hardest things I ever did, but the best outcome was the resilience that I got in very, you know, being firm in what I wanted for my business and the culture I wanted to create because this person wasn't adding value. And I saw some things that were actually taken away from that. I'm like, I need to make a stand right now. Otherwise, I'm going to look weak and this is not really going to be what I want it to be. So uh, let's go back to the whole building of stance and how that thing started. And I want to go into also your, we talked the other day in the, in the gym about your experience with being fit and how that applies to entrepreneurship. You, you went on this monologue that I thought was fascinating. I don't know if you remember what you said, but I want to talk about that specifically because there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are out of shape and they need to get in shape because they will be more successful healthy than not healthy. Yeah. You know, in most companies, I believe more effort as an entrepreneur actually can create a different outcome. There are a lot of jobs where you could work more hours and I'm not sure it would make that big of a difference. Just turns out that building a company is not one of those. When you're an entrepreneur in a startup, that company will take every amount of attention you will give it. It's insatiable. Mm the most insatiable thing ever. So, and it's fun. There's an adrenaline component because you know it can fail. And that fear of failure, that's what makes me alive at least at those early stages. Like this might not work. All the money and time we're putting in this might not work. That's the excitement, right? So it's easy to get addicted to that. It's an addictive feeling. Like operating a small company when you're trying to make it work is, you know, it's a, it's another form of gambling, really. Yeah, it really is. Like there is something to that. So it's easy then, just from a behavior perspective, to pour all your time and energy into that. And I actually got really fit on my 40th birthday. Um, was really happy with my fitness and my habits. But stance was a really uh, intensive, um, you know, it was a company that we built into something large in a short amount of time. And um, so it took anything I would give to it. And I traveled extensively. We built an international business pretty early on. So there was a lot of international travel. And really, I just focused on that almost exclusively. And just day by day over the course of 10 years, uh, gradually worked out less, ate a little worse, and woke up 10 years later and thought, wow, that was a terrible decade for my health. Mm. I've got to press the reset button. And um, so I think startups will take all you will give them. And so it's easy to cheat on a workout or easy to cheat on a meal or something like that. Or have a bottle of wine on the beach in Italy or Spain. Yeah. Or what's not to like about that? Everyone yeah. likes that. But, um, you know, at least for me, I realized that I couldn't continue. I had mortgaged my health as long as I possibly was willing to. And, um, and so it, there was a certain point at which I just changed. I don't know how to explain it. It really did start with your Instagram post. So I would just say, hey, thank you, because you never know when one random internet post is going to make its way into someone you don't know, into their feed, and they're going to react to it. And that's what happened to me. That's Had you not done that, my life would be different today. So I appreciate that, you know, that little like butterfly wing moment made it all the way to me. 
And that's the beauty of the internet is you were sitting on a beach in Italy, having a bottle of wine, relaxing, enjoying all of your success. All the while, it was taking you down a path of being unhealthy, which ultimately you knew wasn't the right thing for you. Innately on the inside, you're like, man, I don't want to feel this way. I need to get back on track. But, but, but you have all of these reasons not to. And then something, like you said, that simple, just mindlessly going through Instagram that you hardly ever go on, went on. Boom. There I am. It, I, you know, to me, that's a fate kind of a moment. Yeah. If you and break unlike, it down that way. you know, a lot of people where I think fitness and health can really be a burden and a challenge. Um, a couple things. I actually, Stance has a gym. I have a gym at work. Yeah, I can go work out anytime I want. We actually have trainers there every day. It's there if I want to take advantage of it. My wife cooks really healthy meals and has our entire marriage. So if I want to eat healthy, it's not that hard to. She works out every day. Uh, so it's not like I had a anything preventing me um, from being focused on health other than my own self. I've met a lot of entrepreneurs who are out of shape and I hear the same story over and over. Clark, I have it all. I have the house. I have the money. I have the cars. I have, you know, I'm either divorced and I've got the young girlfriends, whatever, but I don't have that, what you have. Well, I want a, that body. There's a difference. Maybe not all of those things, but many of those things are bought with money or influenced by money. And fitness can't be bought. You actually just have to do the work. It's personal discipline. And so that's a big difference, right? It's easy to go buy a car. If you have the money, you just show up and give them the money. They give you the car. Fitness doesn't work like that. You have to go to bed earlier to take care of your sleep. You got to wake up earlier and get your workout done before your day starts. If you're in business, you know, if you wait till after work, there's a good likelihood it just won't happen. Something will come up. So you got to wake up earlier and you got to prioritize that. And you got to think about food and food requires a little bit of forethought and preparation. You can't just eat anything. And so it's just a function of, are you willing to do it? Um, but you're right. I see a lot of people in the same space. I had a friend of mine once, he was the uh, vice chairman of Honeywell, which is quite a large business. And he said this, he said, yeah, I don't like executives. They're too fit. It's like, I like them a little fat because hmm. that means they're working a lot. And, um, yeah, that might be what you wanted executives in your company, but um, I don't know that that's the greatest thing if you are that executive. Probably going to live a shorter life, have a bad health outcome. Yeah, die early and not be there to run your company in five years. What about command presence? When you show up in a meeting and you feel slovenly, out of shape, you know, I have a guy recently that that was our conversation. And my goal for him was the next meeting that he showed up to, he looked different to the people that were in his charge and they had a different outlook to him as well. Like, wow, he's moving in the direction that we. I think there's no question that some people judge a lack of fitness as a lack of personal discipline yeah. or they might judge obesity. Look, I try to never assume what's going on in anyone's life. I don't know what their issues are. It's not none of my business. So I don't really look at people that way. But I think to your earlier point, if you've had a lot of business success and you have a lot of money, that's an easy surrogate for power. You can show up and be a little slothy in your personal game because you have a big title or a lot of money, right? So it's easy to sort of ignore that you need to do that. Um, and maybe people, you know, borrow from that, but there's no question Forget how you looked. It's like, let's not even talk about that. Let's just talk about private victories before public victories. If you go to bed early, you give your body the rest it needs, you wake up early, you get in the sauna, you cold plunge, you go do a workout, you put that first uh, fuel in your body and it's healthy fuel, it's clean fuel, you know it is, you're running on premium unleaded or race fuel because you're not eating a bunch of junk, you'll show up at nine o'clock in the office and you've already actually checked a lot of boxes already. Great night's sleep, uh, some, you know, personal sacrifice to go work out, you know, move some weights around, getting in a cold plunge. That's really uncomfortable for a minute, <laughs> right? Yeah. But we know it boosts testosterone. And even if it had no health benefit, 
there's no question that it creates a different level of alertness. Yeah. Um, at least it does for me personally. Um, and I think we know we've seen lots of the studies now from Scandinavia around the benefits of Asana. Those are all things you can just do. You could take your dog for an hour walk and get a nice chunk of steps in at 530 in the morning. And even that is a great personal victory. And I do believe if you can stack up a bunch of those private victories, just you, before you ever get to work, you have a different level of confidence when you approach work. You've already won a bunch of games already before the day's even started. I really believe in that. Yeah. When you show up with that confidence, people are going to listen and business is going to run better. There was a big takeaway you had with regards to walking after dinner. Yeah. Well, look, this was an insight. Uh, someone talked to me about this interesting app called Levels. So I bought a continuous glucose monitor, CGM as they're referred to, put it on my arm and just wore that thing for three months to see how my body reacted to different foods. And I didn't know glucose was tied to exercising and sleeping and blood sugars tied to all of these different parts of your life. And um, that was very revealing. I wouldn't have thought that watermelon as an example, which I thought hydrated me and maybe had some micronutrients and some fiber. I thought that would be a good thing for me. Turns out it's a quick way to get your blood glucose to 150. Um, and so just things about food and how it impacted my body, I didn't know about. And the other great takeaway of yeah, certain foods uh, are pretty dramatic with, with blood glucose and others aren't. Um, but in addition to that, I learned that even a 10 minute walk after dinner Instead of having a glucose spike, I would get a glucose rolling hill on my app. And so I started realizing, wait, there's really something to this walking thing. Like if I walk 20 minutes every time I eat, I don't get a glucose spike. Ah, maybe these Europeans that walk to everything and live in these cities and they walk every night after dinner, maybe they know something I don't know. I guess I was under the impression that to really make a dent, I had to get on a treadmill at eight miles an hour for an hour every day and, you know, feel like I was going to throw up and be drenched in sweat. And it turns out a 20 minute walk with my dog, it's pretty remarkable on the continuous glucose monitor. Like it doesn't have to be some crazy workout. A few minutes walking is actually pretty remarkable for our bodies. So that's a takeaway for you right there. Just walk after you eat dinner and you're going to regulate your blood sugar levels and it's not going to have a negative effect on you like it would if you just laid down and went to sleep, which most people, unfortunately, that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly right. And and what's interesting now, the other night uh, I was in Las Vegas uh, coaching a basketball tournament for my daughter and uh, we ate a meal and I said, all right, do you want to go to the pool? And she's like, no, we need to go walk. We need to get our glucose down. Wow. She's 12 years old. So once you start living this life, your kids pick this stuff up just by being around you. So I never explained it to her, but right. my kids now, they get like walking is a big deal to your health. What's the proximity thing that I talked about? So with that, are your kids entrepreneurs? Are they showing any signs of following in your footsteps with business? I think I have one, maybe two so far. My oldest child's 22. He's going to be a senior this year in college. And then I got another one who's 20. And um, she skipped a year, so she'll also be a senior. And, um, you know, the advice that I give them, I don't know if entrepreneurship is right for them. I love the idea of creating something from scratch. This idea of creation, I think, is a really powerful expression. Just it's to have that experience as a human being <laughs> to create anything, I think, is kind of a magical process. You really feel satisfied and fulfilled in a way that I don't think you can in a normal job. Um, where you just show up and get a paycheck. Um, so I hope that they go through that, but I'm open-minded. I don't really care what they do for a living. My expectations are really low. I, I want them to be kind and respectful people first. I don't view success at all as anything to do with money. I think if you're a school teacher, your success is how well your children learn. It has nothing to do with money. If you're a nurse or a doctor, it's how well you take care of patients, not how much money you make. There are a few jobs, like say maybe investment banking, where the scorecard really is money. Like it's just connected. Maybe entrepreneurship is one of those. I don't know. Um, but I think when I hear people equate success to material success, that's a principle I disagree with. 
I'm more about the alchemist. Like enjoy the adventure and enjoy the building. And maybe there's a treasure at the end of it. or Maybe there isn't. I don't know. But it's certainly, I can't stand the Instagram success culture. Ugh. Like it really, it, to me, it, it's some kind of a bizarre shortcut. Like I really believe if you don't plant in the spring, you can't harvest in the fall. You build something of value by having a great idea and working really hard with a good group of people to execute on it, make solid decisions, get good advice, find a desperate customer, serve that customer better than anyone else possibly can with that particular product that you make or sell. And that with consistency over time will produce the outcome you're looking for on the money side. There is no quick fix. Wealthy people do not play the lottery ever. They, of course, could if they wanted. They just know that it's a silly game. It's rigged against you. Mm. Why would you do that? It's giving your money away. Um, so I just believe like an honest day work for an honest day pay, like you gotta, it's the same way with fitness. It's no different. Like you were telling me the other day at the end of our workout, you made me run the hill a couple times. And you were like, if you eat this way and you work out this way and you finish your workout with these kinds of sprints, like it can't not come off. The fat can't stay on your body. It just can't. And I would say it's sort of in the same way. If you surround yourself with great people and you really apply yourself every day, I guess in business it can still go wrong, but you've definitely stacked the probabilities in your favor that the thing you're building will ultimately be successful and provide the material thing you're seeking. And that's, he just really summed up business for you. If you're out there and you're trying to be an entrepreneur, you're a young person or an older person who's changing your profession, find a desperate customer and service that customer better than anybody else on the planet. And when you do that, your culture will basically create itself, surround yourself with great people, let them do their job. And if someone is not adhering to that culture, get rid of them as quickly as possible and continue to move forward, doing it without the expectation of money being the reward. But really, for me, the reward is what I experienced today. You thanking me for showing up on your feed and saying, look, had that not happened, who knows where I'd be today? You'd probably be fit still, but I'm just fortunate to have been a part of that process. And for that, I'm just so grateful because that just shows me I'm doing something right. And I was never educated in business. I didn't go to college. I went to the Marine Corps and I came out, but I had this desire and it was one that I can't shake. I always tell people I can't not do what I do. If I'm not doing what I'm doing, I would implode, explode, dissolve. Something would happen to me because it's what I was created for. And I know to really get people who are great. Like I have a 25 year old guy on my team who does all the tech stuff, who does all the funnel stuff. Cause that's not what I do. And I don't want to learn it. I want to be with you and talk to you and listen. And like, man, if I just tell him he can't be the CEO of his body, I think this is going to really connect with this man right here. You had a bunch you of know? great tools. Another thing that really impacted me is in our very first zoom call, I think it might've still been during the pandemic, but you said, take off your shirt. I had to take off my shirt. That was a, a low point in my fitness journey from one perspective, because I was embarrassed. I don't want to take off my shirt. I'm not proud of what it looks like with my shirt off. And, you know, that was part of just getting regrounded and being honest with where I really was at and accepting that. And realizing like, okay, this is going to take a lot of effort and hard work and just force myself to do it. And even then there's plenty of days where it was hard, but, um, I just tried to be consistent. And that was the thing that I'd lacked in the past is now I prioritize fitness and the food above other things, which I didn't always do that before. And I'm in a place where, you know, I'm, I didn't just start a company. So I can do that. You know, maybe there's a season in your life where you can be out of balance for a little while, but you got it. You got to grab it before, you know, you, you lose complete control, um, which I feel like I did just in the nick of time. And you popped your top the other day in the garage, like nothing. You're like, Hey, look at this. Mm -hmm. And you just very proudly took your shirt off because 
you made a decision and you were consistent enough in all of the things that you clearly laid out that need to happen, diet, exercise, mindset, and all of these things long enough to get you down to your goal weight, which was... My goal was 175 pounds and I'm 175 pounds today. So from a goal set perspective, I got where I wanted on a weight basis, but then I got a little greedier because once I got here, I'm like, oh no, I want more. Um, I want a genuine six pack. And so it, it turns out that last fat on your waistband, it's the hardest to get off. It's like a paper towel dispenser. You know, I'm in the final few pieces of paper towel before it's done, but I can't seem to get those to come off. Um, and, uh, but that's become a challenge in its own thing where it's not about the weight now. I just got another DEXA scan. I care desperately about my muscle composition as much as I do the fat loss because it's both things. Um, but I, uh, now that's just the thing that's fueling me is the vanity of it all. Um, in addition is I feel like I checked the health box. I feel like I'm healthy. My labs are great. Um, I mean, all of my labs are night and day, uh, from where they were. My testosterone is higher. My cholesterol is lower. Everything that you could look at. My inflammation is way lower. All the key indicators have improved since I started this. Um, my new, my new hack is 10,000 steps when I wake up fasted right away, you know, 5.30 a.m., walk the dog, whatever, um, get the steps in. And then before I sit at my desk and then before I go to bed at night, another 10,000 steps. So, 20,000 steps, but in a fasted way, right? Like um, it's all during a fast. And, um, you know, I'm trying to keep my eating window from like noon to six. Um, and, And so, I think that's making a big difference on the last little bit of fat. It's the one thing I've changed now to try and accelerate the fat loss. Well, the next time we have you on the podcast here, we're going to have you pop the top and show off the abs because just like I talked about up that hill, if you continue to do the things you're doing, drill down even more, no differently than any other business you've ever started and been successful with, it is nearly impossible to not get the result that you looked for when you first started out with that, man. I'm so proud of you, brother. Is there anything you want to say in closing before we wrap this thing up? No, I would just thank you, Clark. I'm really thankful that you found this calling in life because I'm one of the recipients of that choice or that, you know, downstream positive beneficiary. And uh, had you not become the person you are, um, I wouldn't have met you in that moment. And you've been such an incredible resource to me, not just, the workout, but from a mindset perspective and an accountability partner perspective. And, um, you know, it's, fitness is a hard thing. Like when you're first getting started, it's like, you know, the rocket coming off the launch pad, it burns a lot of fuel. Once you get into orbit, you've been doing it a few months, things become a habit. It gets easier. It's part of your life. But that initial change of direction is so hard to do when you've lived a life for decades a different way. Um, that had I not had you as my partner in that, like it would have been a lot harder. I don't know what the outcome would have been. You're like, oh, you would have been fit anyway. Hopefully, but I don't know. Maybe not. Like you made a big difference in my life. And, you know, there's the longevity aspect of this. Because of the changes I've made in the last year, I am certain I'm going to live a lot longer. But more importantly, I think I'm going to have a lot more healthy years, right? Like I think I'll stay healthier longer. Like no one wants to be in their older years and, you know, have chronic disease, which is prolific through our country. Um, and so at some point you just got to own it and take control of your health. And I appreciate that you helped me to do that. You know, as you were saying all that, I could only think of the businesses that you built, you know, with Skull Candy and Stance, you had these partners in these businesses. When you were saying that, I feel like your business partner in you being the CEO of your body. 100%. You know, I was an investor in that and I just feel so proud to have that. Listen, if you resonate at all with anything that Jeff was saying, you're an entrepreneur, you're someone who has really prided yourself on the fact that you could do anything in life and build a business from scratch, but you're struggling with your body, I'd be remiss right now if I didn't say you have an opportunity too to work with me. You don't have to be in Southern California. Jeff lives up the road from me about an hour away and he's able to drive down, but I do it all online and I have 
literally hundreds and hundreds of other men losing hundreds of pounds, boosting their testosterone, getting their confidence back, saving their marriages, things that you wouldn't think would be connected to fitness, but it's impossible to separate the human aspect from this. So the last thing I would tell anyone is get on the treadmill and eat less carbs. You need a more thoughtful approach. And if that's what you're looking for, I'm your guy. Look, there's a link in the bio. You can go to my forum, fill out, jump in the funnel, the business part of this whole thing right here. It's a business. I need to make money. You're going to pay money to do it, but it's worth the investment. Would you say so? I mean, how do you put a price on your health? Like, honestly, even if a training session seems expensive on a dollar basis, you can't think of it as an exchange of value for training. You have to think about it as what would one more year of living be worth to you or three more years of living or 10 more years of living, or instead of getting diabetes and a bunch of chronic diseases when you're 75, which a lot of Americans do be as a consequence to not being healthy for so long. At what point do you just say, this is an inexpensive way to prevent that? You talk about investments and things like that. You know, people invest in businesses all the time, but rarely do people invest in themselves, unfortunately. And that's the first investment any of us should be making anywhere, anytime. So once again, listen, this is what I'm here for. This is what I do. As always, get busy living and make it a great day. Boom. Hopefully you got some nuggets in there. That's my favorite one ever, I think. How long did that go? I felt like great. Yeah. I don't need no damn timer. Well, I'm sure, sure a few edits and you make that thing perfect.